The Better Understanding Podcast is an invitation, an open-hearted extended hand to increase our ability to work, lead, and live with one another more effectively. The premise and philosophy of the podcast is that it all begins with understanding ourselves and understanding others. In season one, and with some of the most successful experts and leaders of diversity and inclusion efforts in the world, we explored what it means to lead inclusively. In season two, we are bringing to life our Wall Street Journal best-selling book, Arrive and Thrive, via powerful stories, earned wisdom, and lessons learned from some of the world's preeminent leaders and thrivers. Join me, Susan McEntee Brady, as we explore how to arrive and thrive. I'm so happy to introduce today's Better Understanding podcast guest, Natalie Martinez. My Arrive and Thrive co-authors, Janet Bowdy and Lynn Perry Wooten, and I were delighted to include Natalie and her story as our featured thriver in the book about the practice of cultivating courage. Natalie is the CEO of Strong Women, Strong Girls, a multi-generational mentoring organization which serves over 1,000 girls a year in the cities of Boston and Pittsburgh. I met Natalie while serving as a board member for Strong Women, Strong Girls. And when Natalie joined the organization, I quickly knew she would be a game changer. Natalie has nearly two decades of experience in nonprofit and academic administration, working with diverse stakeholders, building new programs, and supporting organizational growth. Natalie is as gracious as she is smart and tenacious and courageous. Natalie, welcome to the Better Understanding Podcast, and thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Hi, Susan, and thank you so much for having me. It's truly a pleasure to be here today. Well, what a journey you've been on in your life as a leader and a courageous one at that. Let's start by telling the listeners a little bit more about you. What else do you want us to know? Well, there's so much to say, actually. (laughs) What I'd love to tell the listeners about me and my journey really is that I am a Boston native, born and raised in a town called Mattapan with a family. I'm the youngest of three daughters, and my parents have been together for over 52 years. And my background really comes from most inner city children's backgrounds. So I was raised in a two-parent home, but also in a moderate income family. And so my life in the city of Boston, growing up in the city of Boston, teenage years in the early 90s, was on a trajectory that wasn't always so positive. And I like to start there just to be able to bring some context to the title of CEO and how I have gotten to the place where I am today. So so what's really important is that I didn't have a traditional background. I didn't come from going from high school directly to college and climbing the ladder and becoming CEO. I finished high school. I didn't have a path. I ended up having two daughters and was raising them by myself. Figured out that I wanted to thrive and wanted to have a lifestyle that would be conducive to their growth. And then set out after my goals. And after about 18 to 20 years, have made it to the place where I am today with a lot of support, a lot of people that have been on my team and with me on this process. But for the most part, a lot of courage that I've had to possess in order to get to where I am today. So thank you for sharing all that. It does give texture to your journey. And I'm wondering what you would credit or highlight as having the most impact on courage. 
obviously we interviewed you and told your story as the driver in the practice of courage, but maybe you can tell our listening audience a little bit about what courage has meant to you. And when I think most importantly, you have felt like you've taken an act of courage. Yeah, that's a great way to think about it. To be honest, when I think about courage and how I apply it to my day-to-day role as CEO of Strong Women, Strong Girls, I really do circle back to my original story, which I talked about, which is why how I got here today. It's courage for me and for others is about being able to face adversity, take it and flip it on its head and not allow it to make you say, to stand in a place of fear or to say no. I've had to endure courage personally, and I took those lessons and I now apply them to a professional setting. So the things that used to scare me or the things that used to bring me backwards or make or take me backwards when I was younger, they no longer do those things for me. I'm older, I'm wiser, and I don't put myself in some of the situations that I was in before. But now as an executive and as someone who's leading an organization, I apply those same skills, those same tools, which I describe as tenacity, fearlessness, and the ability to stare adversity in the face, see the silver lining, and then just be bold and be brave about going after the thing or the challenge that's ahead of you. So that's the way that I describe courage currently. Well, so let's talk about in in the book, we define courage and pick it apart. My synopsis on courage is it is not the absence of fear. It's the presence of vulnerability. What's your, how do you, how do you think about the moments when you do feel fear? And what have you learned about fear in the face of all that you've done to triumph, to arrive where you have? I think what's most critical about fear and what I've learned is, first of all, recognizing that that's the emotion that's happening. So sometimes when you're approaching a project or if you're thinking about how do I take my organization to the next level or maybe it's a management conversation and and you're faced with that scenario, you're thinking that you come into it with a certain level of emotion, a certain reaction to it. And a lot of times it's not fear, but when it is, that's a critical moment to know. So you must recognize that that is, is at the core of what's hindering you from making progress. And then once you come into that knowledge of what it is, then you can address it. Because if you're thinking perhaps in a management situation, approaching a conversation, maybe with a difficult employee or just management in general, if you're thinking it's the other person or it's the scenario that's that's playing out, you're not really recognizing the fear that might be existing in you and therefore tapping into the courage that you need to overcome that situation or adversity. So knowledge, acknowledgement is what is uh, critical in the beginning. So I, of course, I am tickled by your answer because it sort of proves my point about both the placement of the first practice, investing in your best self, and mm-hmm. the utility of the framework of returning to your best self by first starting with noticing. So what I heard you say is, just identifying like, okay, that's fear goes a long way. Um, so what's become clear to you about thriving over the course of your career? And, uh, can you share how this clarity came about? 
I just want to confess to our listening audience, and you know this, Natalie, somehow we were able to write a close to 200-page book and never really define thriving, and that's purposeful. Uh, We believe, I believe, that thriving is what you think thriving is for you. And as you answer about what's become clear to you, I'd love for you to dive into maybe your view of what thriving even means for you. Sure. Um, So you hit the nail right on the head, which is exactly what I was going to say. Thriving is what it means for each individual. So at the early stages of my life, thriving was obviously taking care of my young family, figuring out what my path was, even having a direction to go in. And so thriving today as CEO of Strong Women, Strong Girls, as being a part of this book, actually, these are the things that are materializing as thriving for me. So I've been able to do a lot of self-reflection and you'll hear this common theme throughout our conversation today. It's one of the main things that I like to offer to folks who are trying to figure out what thriving means to them. It's really taking some time with yourself and figuring out what is success to me? What is thriving to me? And so for Natalie Martinez, it means having a healthy culture in my organization with my staff members. It means having a strategic plan that I can be working towards and against. So having a direction for us to go in. And it means also practicing some self-care so that I can have the mental space and the mental capacity to set a vision for my organization. So I'm thriving when I found that intellectual, personal, and professional balance. And for someone else, it might be different. But for me, I have to have all of those factors swirling in the universe together, (laughs) simpatico on the same level. And then I know I can feel it. I'm thriving. You know, it's funny that you say that because I I was liberated by the notion of work-life mess recently because what could be perfect for me and I could be squarely leading from my best self and experience the feeling of, of, of thriving could look really absolutely unbalanced or disjointed or somehow wacky to other people. And I think my caution is if we're creating waves that are disruptive waves for others, disruptive, not in a good way, I think then all of a sudden our, our thriving mess becomes other people's mess. But if it looks kind of like here, there, and everywhere, I'm reconciled. Like that's all right for me. It hasn't always looked clean and tidy. I also heard you say something that a previous guest, Carla Harris said so beautifully is the importance of taking time to check in about who you really are. So how has that impacted? Have you made pivotal turns? And, and what would you share about the courage moments of those after you check in with yourself about who you really are and come to awareness? Yeah, I love Carla. So I'm glad that we are on the same page So with some of the things that I'm thinking. And I, and I love this question as well, because when I describe checking in, on who I am as an individual and how I show up in the world, it means a lot of things. It's very complex. So thinking about from the biggest intersection, which is I'm a woman of color and I identify with the female experience. So I am a woman. And really figuring out what that means. And that's a lot to unpack. So what does it mean to be a woman leading an organization in today's time? What does it mean to be a woman of color, actually, leading an organization, and then 
in the nonprofit sector, which is a whole different complexity. So it's multifaceted and multi-layered, but when I describe it, it's really about looking in, a, in an actual mirror. And I encourage your listeners to do this because a lot of times what I'm learning as women and, and those that identify with the female experience, we don't look at ourselves in the mirror. And there's a lot of studies behind that. So taking a moment in whatever way feels good to you, look in the mirror and start to identify the different things that make you who you are. Are you a mom? Are you a sister? Are you, you know, I don't know, a best friend? You know, are you a leader? And it's not only just for women, but that's what's real to me. So that's what I can identify. Men can do these things as well. But really that self-reflection comes from coming to a realization of the different intersections that makes you who you are as an individual. And the, the last thing that I think is key is recognizing not only what, who you are personally, but who you are professionally and how those things are the same or how those things are very different. For me, my personal life is very different than what my professional life is. And there's reasons for that. And a lot of it is so that I can thrive in both. Yeah. Yeah. So you feel some level of boundaries around both, it sounds. Exactly. I'm as I listen to you, Natalie, I am curious about the application of some of what you're talking about earlier mm -hmm. in a girl's life. And I am curious about what you've learned about what we need to expose little girls to. So many of our listeners have daughters and or nieces or little people in their life that they love. Can you speak a little bit about what Strong Women, Strong Girls has learned about what we need to offer girls and by when? Yes. So for, little, for young girls that are growing, what we found is that they are amazing on their own without us. We know this. And so what we are trying to do is provide a platform for them. We're trying to provide that mirror that I talked about where they're able to look at themselves and see all of the value that they bring to the table. And then they, in the amazingness that they are, can decide what that means for their future. So we're trying to expose them to self-awareness. We're trying to expose them or we expose them to role models that not only look like them, but that are fierce and that have accomplished a lot of amazing things. And then we're giving them tools to be able to hone in on their confidence. And that means knowing their girl power and who's on their team, knowing the different things that they need to lean into in terms of courage or whether it's resilience or other things in order for them to be able to move forward in the life in the way that they want to. Um, what we've learned about from the research is that girls just need an opportunity to express themselves and to be who they are because they're authentically great but they're up against a lot of different social circumstances that makes it hard for them to lean into that greatness. Yeah, the, co the context is different. You know, I was in denial of this fact for, for the first three decades of my life. I, I really thought meritocracy was a real thing until I looked around and realized, wait a minute, I think I'm experiencing a different reality because I woke up female, uh, I woke up woman. And mm -hmm. I didn't know that. And so is it still true? I know we used to say, there was research that the self-esteem of a young woman peaks at age nine. It's now, it's now age nine. It, what we were saying before was at age 11. So you're right. You're up 
with the recent data. Even worse. Even worse. Yes, that's exactly. And when when self-esteem peaks at H9, which is just absolutely terrifying to me, it resumes again in your your mid-30s, correct? So that's the key to the research. So it peaks at age nine, but if it if you don't get positive reinforcements and if you don't develop that self esteem to stay at that level, then you right. then typically girls experience a huge drop after the age of eleven. So when they're going into adolescence, puberty, things like that, and then at that point is when if it's dropped to those levels where they begin to engage in in different activities that are detrimental to their lives. It doesn't come back until their mid-30s. It takes so much more time and energy and intervention to be able to get a girl's confidence back up to that level that it was at age nine once it's dropped below the point that we want it to. If I could just say just two more things about this. Strong Women, Strong Girls is really a preventative organization. We're trying to get to the girls before the confidence drops. And the way that I describe it to anyone who wants to see it firsthand is every single person, whether it's themselves or their little cousin or a sister or friend, knows of a nine-year-old that is fierce. She'll tell you if she doesn't want to eat broccoli, she's, she wants to wear whatever clothes she wants to wear. She has the barrettes, so maybe she's coloring her hair, whatever it is. And she's expressing herself. And then all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, it seems like it happens overnight. There's like a darkness or a shadow that comes over that child around 11 or 12 years old. She Usually she's quiet. She's to herself. She's not speaking out in school. Maybe there's some bullying going on. She's not standing up for herself. That's what we're trying to get ahead of. Because if we can build her confidence at nine, when she's ready to take on the world, then when she gets to those points in life where those they're going to be those challenges like you and I have been talking about, She has the tools to embrace her courage, to be able to say to mom or dad or whoever her guardian is, I'm not doing well with this scenario as as opposed to retreating to herself and then allowing her self-esteem to be kind of stripped away from her. And then, you know, obviously it leads to other factors that we're trying to avoid. You know, of course, my my head is exploding because studying what to arrive and drive for little girls is so something I started this project wanting to manifest, and I look forward to seeing that happen eventually. Um, but I'm reminded of some research that we did here at the Institute a, a couple of years ago on authenticity. And here's just a subtle way for our listeners to understand how the world might be, say the jig is rigged sometimes for women and girls. So in defining authenticity and the characteristics of authenticity, what we found was people correlate honesty and transparency with leaders who show up authentically. But the third is confidence. Mm. So if you are confident, you're more likely to be seen as authentic, which why I think the jig is red here is because we know that there is a lack of self-confidence among girls who don't have the advantage that you're talking about. And it, it really sounds strength-based, really, like the curriculum there and what the research says. Did I get that right? Like the sooner uh-huh. we introduce young girls to their strengths, yes, the more that'll help. And then the encouragement to use them. That's the algorithm for developing confidence. Yes, and introducing them to their strengths, but that positive reinforcement. And what what's coming to mind now is, I was recently talking to a gentleman who had has two daughters and he was asking a little bit about strong women, strong girls. And he was saying to me, 
you know, his daughters are young. One in three, I believe is the age he told me. He was like, I don't even know what to do. Like they're girls, but I just keep telling them, you're strong, you're beautiful in all of these positive reinforcers. And I told him, I said, listen, we don't all have the answers, but what you're doing is exactly right. From the time that they even know you, the words that they hear, there's tons of research about young girls, young kids in general, the messages that are reinforcing them from a very early age all the way up through before they get to the point that we talked about earlier will get them to a place where they can arrive and thrive as a young person. And the key here is not to say the communities that we're going after, it doesn't mean that they haven't heard anything positive ever, but there are circumstances where some kids have not. And we want to make sure that we're a part of bringing all children to a place of hearing how great they are very early on so that they can believe it and, and so that they can tap into their abilities. Right. What it reminds me also of is how connected this is coming back to our adult self of women who at this stage in the game wake up and realize they left themselves behind somewhere on their own journey. And I think the point of Arrive and Thrive is not to leave. You can't thrive if you're not in your own journey taking care of you, right? Um, And to that end, I'm wondering, are you seeing trends in this semi-post-pandemic working reality that we're in? I know you deal with student mentees at universities, and you also deal with board members and stakeholders in the communities, adults that you serve. And how can leaders at all levels thoughtfully engage in this context? And what are trends that you're seeing emerge? There are a few trends that I've been seeing. I think what's happening with a lot of different groups, I'll start with some of our mentors and our professional women who are mentoring as well, is that we're seeing people are being asked to take on a lot more because we have this hybrid or this virtual environment. The idea is that you can do more, you have more time. There's a whole, there's just a host of different expectations and it's playing out for people differently. So I haven't seen across the board, it's one way, but the trend that I'm seeing is every single person that I'm talking about is really unsure right now and trying to navigate this quote unquote post pandemic, because let's be honest, we're just in a different phase of it. It's not post anything. It's phase two where we're expected to continue to live with this pandemic, but then we've been given these tools. And so the expectation goes through the roof. And so the trend that I'm mostly seeing is everyone's trying to figure it out and no one has really found the secret sauce yet. There's a few people that are saying, I'm putting up boundaries, I'm protecting myself, and therefore I feel like I'm thriving. But there's also still a lot of people that are not sure of how to exist in this world that we're in right now. Your own self-care practices changed during the pandemic and what would be something specific even to exercising courage that you would recommend to our listeners? My self-care practices have changed tremendously. I realized over the past year when I was completely behind a computer, no one expected me to come out and go to events or do any of that. I really put myself on the back burner physically and really emotionally and mentally as well. 
And so there was a point several months ago, just before the summer, where I said I felt like my health was failing because I was given 150% to my job, to my kids, to my husband, and I wasn't given anything to myself. And I decided, you know what? I have to make sure that in order for me to be here and be the glue, I need to be pliable, tacky, whatever you want to call it, so that I can make it. And I started putting my health first. So started working out, changed my eating habits, have seen some progress. And it's given me more audacity when someone wants to put something on my calendar. And it's during my workout time, which is before work, but it is during my time. I have to say no. And I would never do that before. Because I felt like because I'm the leader, because I'm the one and it buck stops with me, I have to make myself available 100% of the time. And the analogy that I give that one of my mentors gave me before is that we all have one plate. And once the plate is filled with everyone else's stuff, where does your stuff go? It goes off the sides. It spills on the floor. It's a mess. So what you have to learn to do is move some of that stuff over to the side of the plate create a space for your stuff. And then whatever's spilling off the sides is meant to spill off the sides, but it can't be your stuff. So you have one plate, fill it up, but make sure you have your your part, the, the piece of the pie that you're looking for. It's like the art of letting go, right? Well, we didn't even talk about delegating. And I just want you to know that I could go there for hours, especially for leaders. The courage to delegate is incredible because as leaders, we want to make sure it's perfect. And we know that no one can do it or we assume no one can do it like we can do it. And a lot of times that leads to us holding on to things that we could actually just delegate and let someone else take it and know it won't look exactly the way that we would do it, the way we would do it. But it's still done and it's still great and it's amazing. And then it allows you to put more of yourself onto your plate because like yeah. you said, you've given other things to other people. One of the deeply held beliefs that I think women carry, a lot of women carry, that I would love to dispel is that we get extra points somewhere for being needless and wantless. Um, I just don't see that. Uh, <laughs> and so... Given a little bit over and asking for help and being courageous and asking for help is important. By the way, I think a great way to begin the practice of cultivating courage is making micro asks, inconveniencing somebody by saying is simply, no, I, I can't meet with you before X time because, you know, and you don't even say why you can. I'm just taking care of myself, right? I love that example. So Natalie, what are your final thoughts? What's your favorite piece of advice about courage? The book is out. It's a bestseller. I'm sure people have been asking you like, wow, you know, you've been featured as the cultivating courage thriver. What do you find yourself saying most that you want to share? Don't be afraid to get it wrong. And so a lot of times we we are thriving and and striving to be perfect and to get things right. And so my biggest advice to anyone that is trying to be, that is leaning into courage is don't be afraid to get it wrong because it's a lesson learned or it's just your way of seeing a new path or another direction. You cannot be courageous without understanding that you're not perfect. 
That's the courage. You're not perfect. And your way is the right way because it's the way for you. It may not look like the next person, but your way is the right way. Lean into it. Trust it. Don't be worried about it. But also don't be worried about any kind of failures or what you call, you might call a failure. So you heard it here, folks. Perfection isn't just the enemy of inclusion and innovation. Uh, it is also the enemy of courage. Natalie, thank you so much for being with us. Where can our listeners find you online? They can find me on LinkedIn. That's my main point of contact. And by reach, looking up Natalie Martinez on LinkedIn. Great. I love every time we have the opportunity to connect. It has been such an honor to learn from you and share your insights with our listeners. Thank you again so much for joining us. Glad to have been here. Thank you so much, Susan. 